You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. Morning, Pasco Vale. A warm welcome to uh, all our members in attendance and uh, for the newcomers as well, well, a warm welcome to you and for those who will be listening online as well. Now, we hope you are enjoying the, uh, the Kingdom series that we are currently embarking on based on the book of Genesis and that the series has helped you to gain a better understanding of the Old Testament. For those who are new, don't worry, this is only the second one, so you still have a long series to go. So don't worry about it, you can catch, catch up fairly quickly. Now last week, Pastor Lou gave you the introduction into the book of Genesis and covered the creations, chapters 1 through the part of chapter 2. And today, we will continue looking to Genesis and where he left off. As you have seen last week, we've been using this kingdom framework to piece together the story of the Old Testament. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Last week, we saw the pattern of the kingdom establish God's people made in His image, living in His good world, enjoying the perfect rule and blessing as they rule creation with Him. But today, we'll see what went wrong. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to understand your word today as we dig into your scripture. We pray you'll give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive your words today. May the meditation of our hearts and the words that we speak today be holy and acceptable to you. In Jesus' most precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the gotcha questions many atheists think they have against Christianity is, if God created everything, then he must have also created evil. If he created evil, then he must not have been good he must have not been a good God. Gotcha. Mind blown. But sadly, what many atheists in their limited understanding do not get this. Evil is not a thing. Evil is not a thing. You cannot get a jar of evil. Evil exists essentially in the absence of God, in the absence of good. Like ugly is not a thing, it's the absence of beauty. Or cold is not a thing, it's the absence of heat. And a hole is not a thing, it is merely the absence of dirt. You see, God did not create evil. The Bible tells us in chapters 1 and 2 that everything that God created is good. And if God says it's good, we can be very sure his definition of good is beyond our expectations of what good looks like. What is good in God's eyes will be to us as perfection. Sure, God uses evil to demonstrate his good, but God did not create evil. To put it in perspective, it's like a pros prosecutor who uses the words of the criminal to prove his point. He did not commit the crime, but he uses the words of the criminal to demonstrate 
he's done something evil. That person has done something evil. God does not make good, sorry, just because there is words that make them feel out of line, does not make God evil, but makes God more powerful because he is able to also wield evil for his own good. Evil exists not because it is created, but it is because creation was given a choice. A choice to remain in God's goodness or to be in absence of it. God did not want to create robots and no with no ability to think for themselves. Hence, mankind was given the ability to make a choice. God created mankind to be in loving relationship with Him. And there is no true love if there is no choice to love or not to love. This sets the context for the passages we are going to explore today. And with that in mind, we hope it helps us understand the passages of Genesis 3 better. Living in this world, you know, one of the tensions we feel constantly is the undeniable beauty and ugliness of this world, isn't it? We ask ourselves sometimes, why is this world so beautiful, but yet also ugly at the same time? For example, with nuclear energy, when it was first developed, it had the incredible potential to provide a clean energy source for the world. It's led to the development of nuclear medicine and radiation that saves countless lives. But tragically, this amazing technology was also used to create the weapons of mass destruction. The same technology that it can eradicate tumor, cancer cells, and so on, was also used to drop a bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. The creation of the internet has completely transformed the way we communicate, access information, and connect with others, isn't it? We're able to share ideas collaborate, build communities in ways previously impossible. I'm sure we all remember the times we had to ring an operator to connect to someone overseas and the cost for each phone call was so expensive we can only afford a few minutes at a time. Now we can chat the whole day if we wanted to with someone from across the globe with minimal to no charge because of the internet. But this same advancement had facilitated the rise of online bullying, scams, hacking, pornography, illegal trade, which has destroyed many lives. Then there's the world economy, the global economy. Our economy has facilitated international trade and growth, created jobs, lifting millions out of poverty. Yet it also widened the gap between the rich and the poor. It led to the exploitation of natural resources and has been used as a means of oppression over the vulnerable. In these three examples, we see the triumph of human greatness, but also we see the tragedy of human evil. But in all of this, the common thread is we had a choice. We had a choice, and the choice is that we can either choose to use these things for good 
Or we can choose to reject it and use it for evil. As a society, we often ask this question, the world is, is the world getting better or is it getting worse? And honestly, it's hard to tell, isn't it? On the one hand, global health and well-being is increasing. The world is getting more environmentally conscious, more educated, and poverty is decreasing. But on the other hand, there's things like the war in Ukraine and various parts of the world. The number of people living under oppressive governments around the world is rising. And like many of us have experienced mental health conditions, substance abuse have increased significantly over the decade. We are constantly feeling this tension of living in an amazing world, but also in a world that is so cruel and broken. So what accounts for these tensions we feel and experience every day? Now Genesis 3, sorry, Genesis 3 tells, uh, wrestles with this tension and reveals why the world is the way it is. Firstly, by revealing the origin of our problem. Now back in chapter 2, we see a generous God who provides everything we need for life. He, he places Adam in a garden. He gives plants and trees for food. Streams of water come up from the earth to give sustenance. That's relationship. God gives Adam a companion, Eve, to love and partner together in the task God has for them. It's a place with no shame. There's no, they've got nothing to hide, so they walk freely and intimately with God himself. And God shows them the way to live. He provides one rule, one rule only, for how to enjoy this garden. They are free to eat from any tree except one. Any tree except one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if they eat of it, they would surely die. Now some may not realize, but in that middle of the garden as well, God also planted the tree of life for Adam and Eve to consume. The only tree, only tree that God forbid them to consume was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This rule would act as an expression of simple trust and obedience in the midst of abundance and plenty. God's word guides them and also provides for them. But now chapter 3, everything will change. A serpent comes to Eve and asks, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in this garden? Of the garden? You see the craftiness? In Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, This serpent is revealed to be Satan himself the one who deceives and leads humanity astray. Look at how things go wrong. The serpent first gets Eve to doubt God's word by saying, did God really say that? Very crafty question. And notice the deception. Remember God said, eat of everything but one tree. But what does the serpent do? He asks, 
did God say you shall not eat of any tree? He casts doubts, and then distorts God's word. At this point, you probably be screaming inside to Eve, "Don't talk to him! Don't rebuke him! Just walk away!" You know, it's like you're watching a movie and you see the the the, the scary person around the corner. Say, "Don't go there! Don't go in there!" But sadly, she engages. It's not just Satan. Even we ourselves doubt and distort God's word. Notice Eve's reply. He says to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, 'You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die.'" Wait a minute. When did God say that? They weren't allowed to touch it. Was that in his words? No. They made God out to be someone not generous, but maybe a little bit oppressive. Even you can't even touch it. You see, friends, our problems begin by our doubting, and then the distorting of God's word, before finally God's word. Justified. In verse four, the servant says, "You will not surely die." Now all subtlety is gone. It's flat-out defiance of what God said, isn't it? And look carefully at this reasoning in verse five: "You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God." Knowing good and evil, wanting to know good and evil in this this instance isn't just wanting to know the difference between good and evil, but is wanting to define what is good and what is evil for ourselves, apart from God's word. It's a desire to be. God, and to set our own rules. Do you see the craftiness, the deception? The serpent says, "God made this rule because He's trying to withhold something good from you. He doesn't want you to be like Him." Now I wonder. I wonder if you can trace the progression. In your own heart, when you are tempted by sin, to doubt, distort, and defy God's word. Take greed for example. Take greed for example. The Bible warns strongly against greed in all our lives, but we begin doubting God's word of us, because deep down, none of us think we are greedy, isn't it? Our mind goes to stereotypes of. Overpaid CEOs or or people who believe the prosperity gospel and say that's God who that's what God's talking about. They're talking about them, not us, not me. Then we may distort God's word, saying by placing ourselves as an exception to the rule. We think if God really knew my situation, the financial pressures I'm under, He would know this warning doesn't apply to me. 
And even though the average Australian is amongst the richest 1.5% in this world, sometimes we only compare ourselves to people richer than us and tell ourselves that we need more money. Before God's word is defied, and instead our hearts is drawn to the accumulation of wealth and possessions. I know this because I often also see it in my own self. Do you? Next time you feel tempted to disobey God, don't forget that all temptation seeks to ruin you. It's not a taste of something good that God is withholding from you. It's something that is seeking to destroy you. But sadly, Adam and Eve buy into the lie and they take the fruit. The origin of our problem is not that we've been deceived, but not just that. In verse 6, the fundamental problem is that our hearts want something else. Our hearts want something else. Verse 6, Eve saw that the tree as a delight to her eyes and was to be desired to make one wise. It's a language of lust and desire. Now, St. Augustine describes sin as a disordered love. And here, the desire for wisdom to be God becomes more important than Adam and Eve's desire for faithfulness and obedience to God. And it's true of all sin, isn't it? When we lie, in the moment of our love for our reputation, we override our love for the truth. When we gossip, our love for our acceptance and popularity overrides our love to protect others and their privacy. When we lust, our love for pleasure overrides our love for purity. Now the reformer Thomas Kramer says this, What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's exactly what we see here. The origin of our problem lies in the human heart. Our problem is a disordered love that doubts, distorts, and ultimately defies God's word. Friends, sadly, there are consequences of that decision. If God spoke creation into existence and His Word is ingrained in the fabric of our universe, then our decision to defy it must have devastating consequences. Because I wonder if you notice what's happened in all of this. God's created order has been overturned. Where humans were given a commission to rule over creation, now, by listening to the serpent, a created being, humanity has allowed creation to rule over them. They have obeyed the voice of creation rather than the voice of God, the Creator. Romans 1 says that we have exchanged the worship of the created God for the created beings. 
But rather than worship an all-powerful God back then, people worshipped idols made of glass, precious metal, stone and wood. Today, we worship idols made out of glass, metal and plastic. But it's the same, isn't it? It's an exchange of worship away from the Creator to the created. Think about it. Why are we always checking out updates on the news or social media or, or whatever? Why? Part of us wants to know everything. To be omniscient. Part of us wants to control everything. To be omnipotent. And when we're seeking to be constantly connected with everyone, part of us wants to be everywhere, to be omnipresent. Sounds like someone? Because as soon as they eat the fruit, what happens in verse 7? They're immediately aware of their nakedness. But in chapter 2, men and women were naked and they felt no shame. They had nothing to hide. But now, they become acutely aware of their guilt and shame. And they try to cover it up with leaves and, and fig leaves. And sadly, it results in a broken relationship with God. Now in verse 8, where humanity used to walk with God in the garden, now they hide from His presence. Sin separates them. And even in verse 9, as God seeks them out, their relationship with Him has fundamentally changed, hasn't it? We see that today in kids. You know, when they've done something wrong, often they run away and hide. They know. They know they're in trouble. And they feel very accurately a sense of shame. The consequence of sin is shame which breaks relationships. Friends, sins doesn't just break our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with one another. In verse 12, when God asked Adam what went wrong, he says, the woman, the woman, she's the problem. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Just a chapter before, in chapter 2, Adam was singing a love song to his wife Eve. Just before he was serenading his bride, singing this, at last is a bone of his bone and flesh of his lives. We belong together, so on and so forth. Well, that didn't last very long. Now in Adam's eyes, his precious wife is really a source of his problems at this point in time because of the sins that he's committed, isn't it? Now, where God designed relationships to be life and joy, now our relationships are filled with conflict. Instead of serving others, we hurt others. Instead of our hearts loving others, our hearts have turned inwards, looking inwards. And we can only think about ourselves and our wants and our needs. And we don't see anyone else. Or in case you didn't notice, Adam blames God too. You gave her to me. Now, even as God turns to Eve, the bl she blames someone else too. The serpent. The serpent was the one that deceived me, and I ate. 
Do you see the culture of victimhood here? Everyone is pointing the finger at someone else. Isn't it interesting that when we ask the question of what's wrong with the world, we never start with us, but blame the government. We blame the media. We blame others, our colleagues or whatever, our friends. But never do we blame us, me. It's a twisted cycle of blame. Genesis reveals the world is so broken because we're experiencing the consequences of our decisions to break relationship with our Creator. Friends, if we want to really grapple with the beauty and the ugliness of our world, we need to hear from God. Because like we've seen, it's His words that brings clarity and sheds light so now God will deliver his verdict on our situation where blessing is now inflicted by curse. God turns to Adam and Eve. Notice their curse is indirectly tied to their previous blessings, isn't it? In verse uh, 16, where God blessed humanity and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, the woman's multiplication in childbearing is now incredibly painful. And that's true of the childbearing experiences, isn't it? Birth can be one of the greatest miracles, one of the greatest miracles we ever witness. But at the same time, it can also be the most painful moment for a woman. It speaks of the triumph and also the tragedy of our world. Sin here is the same act of childbearing. Our blessings to flourish and multiply has been fractured. The curse also affects relationship between men and women too. Where God blessed us with relationship as a gift. God says to Eve that her desire shall be contrary to Adam. But he shall rule over you. Where men and women were created as companions and help for one another. Now they are competitors. Where marriage was supposed to be a display, the beauty and the difference between male and female in God's created image. Now wives will, do, will no longer submit to their husbands, lead, and husbands will no longer exercise their leadership in loving, self-sacrificial way for their wives. It's very sad, isn't it? And verse 17, where we were previously blessed and called to work the ground, now the ground is cursed. As great and fulfilling is as what can be, because of God's verdict, it will always carry a sense of futility and frustration. Do you feel that way? Now we can see the goodness in work. But man, sometimes it's just so frustrating, isn't it? Mondays always roll around too soon. And holidays never last long enough. Unless you really enjoy your job, many of us can't help but think of resigning sometimes. We often have a sense of futility in our task. And we are always imagining that the grass is greener on the other side. But then we quit our jobs, find another one. And you know what? It's just as frustrating as the first one. 
just in a different way. And sadly, God's ultimate verdict ends in death. God warned humanity that if they rejected his word and instead ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And that's what happens. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is, of course, the most common human experience that will come for everyone. And yet when it comes for those we love, we find it very hard to accept it, isn't it? Because we instinctively think it is something wrong, something that is wrong. Deep down we know that this is not what we were designed for. Death screams to us that this, is the, this world is not the way it should be. As you look at our world and see how we have descended into conflict and chaos, it might lead you to think a pretty fatalistic view of the world. Perhaps all the death and brokenness indicates to you that there really is no meaning in our lives. As a young man, I struggle with that. When you see an old animal rolling in the mud, you don't call that a tragedy. It's just what they do. But if you see a human rolling in the mud, brought down to the dust, you know instinctively that's wrong. That's a tragedy. Why the difference? It is because, my friends, we are created for so much more. What makes Genesis 3 so ugly is the beautiful vision of Genesis 1 and 2. That we were created for something so much greater than this. We were created to know God and live in perfect world with Him. What makes our world so ugly is that we are created for such beauty, but we wallow in that mud. So this is where we are. Where God has created a blessed people to live in His presence under His rule and blessing. It's all now been lost. Humans have rejected God's rule. We have defied His word and turned our hearts away from Him. And where humanity used to experience blessings and life, now we experience the curse and death. And in verse 24, Adam and Eve are removed from their place in the garden, away from God's presence and blessing. The pattern of the kingdom established last week has been lost. It's a bit depressing. But even in this ugliness, even in this ugliness, we see a glimpse of hope. A glimpse of hope. Because God's love for His creation, He did not leave us where we are. As God curses the serpent in verse 15, He says, He will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise His heel. God foreshadows a conflict between a serpent and humanity. But that, through the, serpent, uh, through the offspring of this woman, we will prevail. 
It foreshadows that a human being will come to deal a death blow to the serpent on his head while also being injured in the process. God says someone is coming to win a victory over Satan, but that someone will also receive a blow in that process. This verse is understood as the first glimpse of the gospel, also known, also known as the good news in the Old Testament, because it predicts that God will provide a saviour, one who will win victory on behalf of humanity, but at a great cost to himself. God promises that Satan, will, Satan and evil will be defeated. We read later in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, says that God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the promise still stands even today. And then if you look at verse 21, where humans try to cover their shame using fig leaves, we see that God himself covers their shame and clothes them. Even in their sin, God still provides for them. But notice that their covering is made from animal skin. An animal had to die in their place. Someone or something had to give their life so as to atone for the sins and to cover their shame. Now whilst an animal had to die as a consequence, it would never fully pay the death of a human sin. This passage anticipates that God will not leave us in sin and death, but He will work to redeem us so that we can then find our way back to that garden again. As we wrestle with the beauty and ugliness of our world, the French mathematician Blaise Pascal says pretty bluntly that humans are the glory, but also the garbage of the universe. That's what the opening chapters of Genesis do. They help us to make sense of this tension that we are facing. So as we close, how can we live with this tension as you feel the brokenness of the, this world? Firstly, is to lament. So much of the Old Testament is a lament. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Lament is expressing your sorrow and grief to God as we live in this fallen world. As Christians, we don't need to live with a false sense of optimism. We don't need to simply ignore or suppress our pain and pretend it doesn't exist and pretend it's all okay. Instead, lamenting orients us the reality of our world and its brokenness. It tells us of our reliance on our God. It gives us an avenue to express our pain and our disappointment. And, to God, and so God invites us to come to Him our frustrations and our tears and to find rest in him who suffered for us and suffers with us. Secondly, is to repent. We need to take ownership of what, we, what role we play in the brokenness of this world. Like the lyrics of the song Man in the Mirror, if we want change, we need to start with the man that's sitting in the, standing in the front of the mirror. Repentance before God recognizes that the root problem lies in our heart. He reminds us that we cannot solve the problems of our world. Repentance acknowledges that God needs to step in and do something about it. 
And that's why, my friends, we need Jesus. Repentance reminds us of God's grace and tenderness in covering our shame, not through the death of an animal, but through the death of His one and only Son who died on the cross to cover our shame forever. And last but not least, we need to look forward, look ahead to a better future. Just as this passage anticipates God's isn't done with our world, this is not the way it will end. But He's stepping into our world to rescue us and restore us. In this way, Christianity isn't just realistic, it's hopeful. God promises there will be a day when Satan, sin and death are finally defeated. And even in this world, we are constantly feeling the weight of our sin and conflict. We will experience the frailty of our bodies. Even as we grieve the finality of death, this is not how it will all end. And so, over the next few weeks, we will hopefully see the beginning and the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. Or where He will begin to restore all that has been lost. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, there is a lot to digest in this simple chapter alone. But one message is so important. One message is so important. And that is we have sinned and fallen short of your glory now. But Lord, thank you. Thank you for helping. Thank you for giving us a second chance. Thank you for giving us hope. To know that we have a future to look forward to. To know that Jesus has paid the price of our sins fully upon that cross. Help us to make sense of this world as we live in it. To lament. To repent of our ways and to keep an eye on the hope that is ahead of us. Let us not be afraid to tell others of that good news too. Perhaps there are others around us, our family, our, our friends, our colleagues, that do not know you yet, and they are living in this, this dark world and have no idea, and they feel a sense of hopelessness. Lord, help us to love them and be bold to speak your name into their lives so that they too may find a hope in the salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray, dear Lord, that you will speak to each and every one of our hearts today. Challenge us. Rebuke us. Train us in righteousness. For your word is powerful. And we pray, dear Lord, that you transform our hearts to own our sin and to look to your redemption. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.